Welcome to Ag Future, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the challenges and opportunities facing the global food supply chain and speak with experts working to support a planet of plenty. This is Tom Martin, and joining me is Jared Sutton, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Innovation at the National Pork Board. Greetings, Jared. Hello, Tom. Thank you for having me. Tell us briefly, if you would, for, uh, for starters, about the mission of the Pork Board. Well, the U.S. National Pork Board is the organization that represents all of America's pork producers. And quite candidly, our job is to strengthen the value of pork in the marketplace. But really, we're, we're, out, to, uh, we're out to change the world. We're out to uh, feed a growing population. And uh, we do that by um, essentially uh, doing what's right by pigs, doing what's right by people, and doing what's right by the planet. And do I understand correctly that you focus on what you just told us and that you don't focus on lobbying or influencing policy? Yeah, that's correct. The National Pork Board is a quasi-governmental organization, so it falls under the jurisdiction of the United States Department of Agriculture. And as such, we're prohibited from doing any type of lobbying and uh, advocacy influence in the political space. That being said, we do invest in uh, research and in promotion, as well as consumer information. And that's part of our mandate, which is uh, part of uh, the 1985 Farm Bill and referred to as the Pork Act in Order. Okay. I know that you've had marketing and social responsibility roles in the uh, pork industry, and I've read that your current role is to help the industry be more future-focused, insight-driven, and responsive to customers. And I'd like to look at each of those uh, one at a time. Mm -hmm. And first one, focusing on the future of the pork industry, especially in these times when the food service industry has been knocked back on its heels by the coronavirus pandemic, what do you see in the future of the industry? Well, clearly it's been a tremendous challenge for uh, for pork producers the last several months, given not only the closures in food service, but the issues that have happened at the processing plant level. You've had people getting sick, and uh, obviously that's a real problem. And those workers at the plant level uh, were deemed essential workers by the uh, current administration, but we knew they were essential workers uh, long before the, the rest of the world did. And so when people start getting sick, and um, clearly that presents tremendous issues and challenges for the industry to overcome, we're so glad that uh, the government has been able to step in and uh, provide the assistance and the proper equipment to help reduce the risk of those uh, important workers from, from getting sick. And so that, that slowdown, both at food service as well at the processing level, created some challenges for, for farmers just backing the system up quite candidly. But when you look at things from a consumer lens, obviously the buying habits shifted um, like we've not seen before, where people were rush, rushing to their grocer or uh, certainly purchasing online and stocking up on products. And the meat department benefited from that. What we saw and have seen actually through uh, the, the first week of June is um, the most current data. The total meat department sales and meat department is leading all categories in the retail supermarket space. They're up 24.2% versus 2019, which is pretty significant. Pork itself is up 30%. So it has actually surpassed the growth of the entire category. So clearly, more people in the United States are eating more pork at home than at any given point in the history of the data and the record keeping. Getting consumers information, which is frankly easier than ever before, right? Digitally, we can provide consumers videos and recipes. Uh, with more people with more pork on hand at home than ever before, 
we want to deliver those tools to people to ensure that they can have a successful eating experience so that it sustains demand as food service starts to open back up. And that's really an important part of our focus as well is to ensure that we've got um, all of our distributor partners, all of our restaurant partners, uh, chefs included, really um, geared up and ready with the latest consumer trend information to be as successful as they possibly can be with not only the products that they're menuing, which likely will be limited assortment, but also to menu in the right way to be most relevant with how consumer needs and, and demands have shifted. And so really focused on sustaining that demand that um, we've experienced in, in growth at the retail point of purchase and helping prepare our food service partners to be successful as they begin to reopen. I mentioned that uh, another of your roles is to help the industry become more insight-driven, and, and I would assume that that has to do with data and so forth, but can you elaborate? Tell us what it means to be insight-driven. Yeah, the food's very emotional. It's what brings people together. It's what comforts us in times of uncertainties and unknowns. And certainly when we think about buying and selling and producing food, it can oftentimes be emotional as well. And it's become really a, a central part of uh, dialogue and, and debate in technology, in, in innovation, obviously in the polit- geopolitical issues. And so I learned a long time ago, Tom, that really everybody's got ideas, everybody's got opinions. That's what makes the world go around. But data really is what it is. And if you can collect smart data and spend time strategically analyzing that data, you can quickly see uh, really the, the trends that are taking shape. So we just call it trend spotting, right? Then you can anchor in on those things that are truly the certainties, the real moments of human truth. And given the digital technology and many people walking around with smartphone devices that um, you know really are demonstrating uh, by the hour how we live, all that digital exhaust that we're leaving a trail of is is captured and reported back to organizations like the U.S. National Pork Board to effectively understand where to where to place bets and how we can effectively drive innovation in our industry to ensure that pork remains relevant and continues to meet those changing consumer needs. So we, we talk about being data heavy and assumption light. The assumptions, I think people say maybe they weren't. Those are important points for, for dialogue for sure. But I want to see a source and a reference. I want to be data driven in the decisions that we're making on behalf of a big, big industry to feed the world. So, Jared, it sounds like that connects to the third leg of the stool, which is to help the industry become more responsive to customers. Has there been a need for improvement in that area? Absolutely. I think the the biggest challenge for for our industry is truly understanding the implications for pork uh, that these changing consumer needs present. And so that's why we set out on this journey back in 2017 to conduct a comprehensive demand landscape throughout the entire United States to really get to know the different segments of consumers from from coast to coast and how their lives have changed, how how food plays a role in those those lives and you know the expectations for the the protein specifically that that they're determining whether or not to purchase. And that helped us sort of like the Stockdale paradox You know, we know we've got a great product and we're very optimistic and confident that clearly it will continue to be relevant with consumers. We had to face the brutal facts that, boy, there's an awful lot of consumers in this country that just aren't as comfortable. They're not very confident in the kitchen. And they told us that through pretty massive uh, quantitative surveys. Of course, we had a lot of qualitative interaction with people and 
probably no surprise to many folks that generationally we're mostly less competent in the kitchen. And so that creates opportunities for businesses and industries to really innovate and deliver these products to be um, more relevant to fit into the way that uh, the way that people live today, their lifestyles today. And so, again, that's the brutal facts that we had to really recognize and, and come to terms with and really fuel innovative ideas in terms of product development, processing, further cooking, et cetera, to um, make our products fit into consumers' busy lifestyles. I'm just wondering, are the numbers in? Do you have the data to know yet whether there has been a massive shift from uh, dining out to preparing meals at home? And, and Well, we know that's happened, but how has it impacted pork sales? Yeah, well, pork sales are up. They are up significantly, and that's a uh, that's a tremendous story, given the challenges that we're facing, um, you know, globally with a pandemic. My goodness, it's just been devastating, and you know, our hearts go out to all those that have been affected by the coronavirus. Certainly, our industry has, but in the same breath, when you look at the end product and the distribution channels that we have, we've been able as a pork industry to successfully grow the demand for pork and the sales specifically at the retail point of purchase. And what a seismic shift from food service and eating out on a regular basis to now, obviously, uh, almost exclusively in most areas, eating at home. And so, again, the, the entire meat department sales in this year, 2020, compared to 2019, are up 24.2%. That's generated an additional $6.2 billion dollars in the retail meat category versus a year ago. a huge, huge uh, swing and shift in consumer behavior. For pork specifically, pork's actually ahead of the game. And so taking some share from competing proteins in, in the category, beef and chicken specifically, pork sales are up 30% uh, in 2020 versus 2019. So again, the category is growing significantly and and I'm proud to say that pork is ahead of the game at, at uh, significant percentage points ahead of the category as a whole. During your one presentation, you noted that pork is the number one consumed protein globally, but fresh pork is the featured protein in less than 7% of entree options when dining out in the U.S. as opposed to cooking at home. I wonder what accounts for such low interest in pork on the part of American diners. Is there some kind of perception issue, do you think? Well, that's a great question. The fresh pork, you have to distinguish between fresh and the further cooked or value-added pork. Uh -huh. So if we look at bacon, bacon is ubiquitous. So that's sort of the outlier. We, we have to look at bacon somewhat separately because it's, a, it's across um, almost all menus. Yes, we must have bacon. Pork, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my job is to uh, to not screw that up. People love their bacon, and that's a great thing. Oh, this is the land of the BLT, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and we're in that season, and hopefully that season will be extended. The challenges with fresh pork, uh, candidly, is is um, the perceptions of the, the labor and, and the time that it takes in the food service space. Uh, and as you know, uh, prior to COVID-19, that was a... a in demand, right? And just in time, things were moving fast and got to be quick on the grill. And so there's this perception for most that perhaps fresh pork doesn't fit into um, that systematic process as well as competing proteins do. However, that being said, those in the know have proven to be tremendously successful with fresh pork on their menus. And their celebrity high-profile chefs like Matt Abdu at Pig Beach in Brooklyn, as an example, or 
Jose Mendine at Pub Belly in Miami or Adam Sappington at Country Cat in Portland, Oregon. The list goes on and on. These these well-known chefs that are truly on the cutting edge and driving trends in the food service industry have embraced that farm-to-fork story and really uh, sustainability in general in terms of using all pieces and parts of the pig specifically and the tremendous uh, value that comes from that, the story that comes from that, and obviously the great flavor and the variety of dishes that can be prepared with that. And we know that a lot of food service operators are watching people like that. So that's why we choose to really spend a lot of time with those well-known chefs and um, you know, have some great partnerships that are demonstrating pork on the menu differently than most people are probably accustomed to. Well, Jared, you have said that you are data-heavy and assumption-light, and that's an interesting phrase. Uh, can you elaborate for us? Yeah, we've built a competency at the U.S. National Pork Board to capture big data. And, you know, there's a lot of businesses, businesses and industries that uh, obviously are spending a lot of time looking at data, but but the U.S. National Pork Board is looking at it a bit differently than any one of our stakeholders does individually. For us, we're capturing consumer trends through syndicated data sources. We're fielding custom research stories to essentially, or, or studies, excuse me, to essentially, you know, discover some of the um, specific uh, questions uh, that we have and, and answer those to these quantitative studies. We're obviously partnering with a number of, of land grant universities to do production-related research. And the list goes on and on. And so the competency of the U.S. National Pork Board is really building this uh, data ecosystem, right? An ecosystem of partners, each having a very specific role for the information that they provide to give us a unique, holistic picture of what the world is telling us. The data exists because of, as I was mentioning earlier, the, the, uh, exhaust, digital exhaust that we're all leaving a trail of on a daily basis. If you think about it smartly and you weave this, this um, you know, ecosystem of data partners together, you can get a very unique view of how the world continues to evolve and its expectations for your industry and for your product. And that's exactly what we've attempted to do. We continue to refine it. But uh, our secret sauce, if you will, is truly that unique set of data partners that um, essentially can answer any question that we bring forward. And I'd say that's a pretty unique offering at the U.S. National Pork Board. Well, speaking of data, last year the Pork Board released research looking at trends in consumer behavior related to dining out. And I think more than 10,000 consumers were surveyed, many food service operators were interviewed, and all of that was paired with volumetric data and syndicated food service data. The study is said to have uncovered why consumers decide to eat the proteins they eat. What did you learn from that? That's exactly right, Tom, and that's a great example of how we've become data-heavy and assumption-light. There's essentially a consumer decision tree. You know, it starts with, well, what type of dish do I want? Am I looking at indulging taste? Am I looking for nurturing health? Do I just need something quick and convenient on the go? The next piece in the consideration set is, who am I dining with? Am I going out with friends? Is it coworkers? My family? Do I have a date? You know, is it just me? Am I in my car? Right. The third piece then is what kind of moment is it? Are we going out as as part of a celebration? Is this a business luncheon or dinner? Is it last minute? I need something in the car on the go. All of these things are critically important to understand in terms of the consumer's decision making process, so that you can obviously position your products accordingly. For pork, what we know. The number one reason that people order pork is the flavor. 
It's culturally relevant. It's culturally exciting. And essentially what that means is it just tastes good. It's all about flavor. The next piece, which candidly is a tremendous opportunity for pork, is the whole idea is, is this good for me or not? That's the whole nutritional story that unfortunately we've got some work to do. People have the misperception that uh, a lot of people do, I should say, that that maybe pork isn't as good for me as other proteins. And that's just simply not true. We have an opportunity using the data to convey that in a very um, story-friendly way. It's an important piece of the consideration set. And then the third and final uh, piece is, is it good for the planet? Am I making a responsible choice? That sort of permission to eat is really becoming much more prominent with with the consumer decision-making process, especially away from home, right, in food service restaurants because of the stories that you'll uh, really be brought in by on the menus as well as the, um, you know, the story of the proprietor, the restaurant owner, and, and how they're sourcing what foods from farm to fork to locally sourced to et cetera, et cetera. So uh, flavor, is it good for me and is it good for the planet are really three important parts of the consideration process for consumers determining which protein they're going to consume. So, Jared, what about antibiotics? There was concern about whether or not it's pork is good for the planet, as you mentioned. So how is the industry addressing consumer concerns about antibiotic and antimicrobial resistance? By being very transparent, we have public reporting um, to ensure that anybody who's interested in knowing what antibiotics are used, how often, for what purpose, this all information is readily available and easily accessible for consumers. And more importantly, there's production practices longstanding in the U.S. pork industry in place to literally reduce the need for the use of antibiotics. I have the, I have the um, experience, Tom. I actually grew up on a farm in north central Indiana. And here's what I know. I still have a lot of family and friends that farm back there. Antibiotics cost money. And if you have to use antibiotics, that means you got some some illness problems, some disease issues. No farmer wants wants to have to spend any more money than they have to. So point being, they're not going to use these antibiotics uh, haphazardly by any means. But secondly, these farmers wake up every day to ensure that they're they're giving the best care for those animals, and that means protecting their health. That's why we have a, a veterinary client relationship status with. It's required as part of the pork quality assurance program, which is required to sell pigs at any given packing house in the United States. The veterinary client relationship, critically important. That means you've got a trained veterinarian who's overseeing any type of administration of antibiotics. But more importantly, the stepwise process to exhaust all other options before prescribing any of those antibiotics. The second piece And arguably most important is biosecurity. Lots of questions about U.S. pork production and pigs in these barns. And, you know, there's there's signs up and you got to shower in before you can actually enter into the barn. What what are they keeping secret in there? Well, the reality is it's because humans are carrying around, as we now know more than ever, all kinds of potential viruses and and diseases and, and, you know, things that could bacteria that could potentially uh, give introduce a sickness to the pigs. It's not protecting us from the pigs. It's protecting the pigs from us. And so by improving biosecurity and really, you know, being smart about how we provide the most cleanliness, the most, the best climate controlled facilities for these pigs to grow in, we've been able to improve overall herd health and reduce the, reduce the need to use antibiotics. And so again, being very transparent, critically important, close working relationship with veterinarians, obviously the most important. 
And then third is to improve our overall production practices and biosecurity in particular to reduce the need. A couple of years ago, when you were vice president of domestic marketing at the Pork Board, uh, you noted then a need to know from the value consumer all the way to the premium consumer how they're thinking about their food needs and, and how pork currently fits into those needs. Have those questions been answered? That, Tom, is is a constantly evolving opportunity. I'm tired of saying the word challenge. It's an opportunity for us, especially in the challenging economic times that we're facing. They're more value-conscientious shoppers, and pork, especially fresh pork, is positioned well versus competing proteins as a, as a valuable offering. The price is positioned well, especially as, as you look across the meat case. And so that's that's a good thing for a number of reasons, but it's not really something you, you want to anchor in on as your overall marketing strategy, right? We want to create more value. And so thankfully, because of the versatility of the pig and the various cuts that come from the animal, we have a number of products that fit well into white tablecloth restaurant menus, which oftentimes get a premium for those products. I mentioned those three chefs earlier, Adam Sappington in Portland, Oregon, Matt Adu in Brooklyn, New York. Jose Mendine in Miami, those three restaurants, uh, those three gentlemen's restaurants, the, the Country Cat in Portland, Pig Beach in Brooklyn, Pub Belly in Miami, those three are pork-centric restaurants. They are incredibly successful and, again, clearly have you know, positioned pork as a premium to likely introduce to a great number of consumers um, a different uh, cut or a different way to prepare and serve that cut. So it continues to evolve. We obviously have a a, a really important role to play in feeding a growing population in need. And thankfully, we have a low-cost operating uh, here in the middle of the United States, which gives us that value proposition and and low cost, but also premium products that fit well into those five-star dining restaurant menus and uh, really can meet both ends of the spectrum's needs. Okay, uh, to briefly change the subject, if you could tell us about your partnerships with Google and with YouTube. Yeah, Google and YouTube really has been a tremendous experience for the U.S. National Pork Board, Google in particular, because I learned a long time ago that every sale starts with Google. Again, thinking data-heavy, assumption light. Google is a tremendous partner to just give you a glimpse at culture, how trends continue to evolve, how they start to um, you know become a trend. And you really get a direct line of sight into what, uh, you know, different segments of the population are thinking and how culture swings affect the actual search and, and purchase behavior. So that, that partnership in and of itself has been tremendously valuable because we want to make sure that when people are searching for information about pork specifically, that we've got the factual, you know, right information at the right time. That's critically important. And Google search enables that. The YouTube partnership is really pretty interesting because, as we all know, YouTube continues to be a main stage for a number of, of uh, up-and-coming content creators. And anybody who's got a mobile device can um, post uh, you know, content onto YouTube. But there are a number of influencers that have millions of followers on YouTube that are delivering messaging and, and delivering information and certain entertainment on a regular basis. So with YouTube, we've been able to identify content creators that have significant numbers of followers, obviously um, primarily food-focused, where we can engage with them and and certainly sponsor some episodes of their video series to feature pork. 
the beautiful thing about YouTube is we just kind of give them some very broad talking points and direction. Obviously, we give them some pork, and then we watch them do what they do, that authenticity and that passion for pork and, and uh, you know, all of the things that make their videos worth watching. It wouldn't work as a paid commercial. You got to let those creators do what they do. And so that means you got to release some of the control. And um, we've had a lot of great um, success doing that with five videos over the last 24 months that the U.S. Pork Board has invested in with partnerships on YouTube. They've been trending videos, which means they're at the top YouTube worldwide, which is which is really a tremendous feat. It just doesn't happen with, quote, sponsored videos. So it speaks to the authenticity and creativity of the, the content creators, the, the loyalty that they have and the fans that subscribe to their content, and obviously both uh, both of their their um, passions for pork, and thankfully we've seen a growth in favorability and certainly a growth in um, you know loyalty for pork products as a result of it. Well, Jared, I have to ask because I think inquiring minds want to know. But what's your favorite pork dish? <laughs> I get that question a lot. You know, I'm the pork guy in a lot of circles, my social circles in particular. And I never get tired of it, to be honest with you. If I had to choose, I, I got to say two. One is barbecue ribs. Mm. You can't be barbecue ribs. Mm. Number two is tonkatsu, a Japanese dish. And, and it's one of my favorites for sure. So I, I'd have to say it's a tie, barbecue ribs and tonkatsu. Jared Sutton, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Innovation at the National Pork Board. Thanks so much, Jared. Yeah, Tom, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. I'm Tom Martin, and this has been Ag Future, presented by Alltech. Thank you for joining us, and be sure to subscribe to Ag Future wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a review if you've enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in watching video content from other thought leaders from around the world, register at one.alltech.com. That's one.alltech.com.